This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Film, podcast on the New Books Network. I am Bill Schaefer, your host for today's episode. My guest today is Patrick French, a professor in French and Vice Dean at King's College London. His recent Roland Barton film, Myth, Eroticism and Poetics, was published in 2019 by Bloomsbury. It is a comprehensively researched and finely argued book that traces Barth's engagement with questions of cinema from early research predating the publication of Mythologies to his last work, Camera Lucida, along the way responding in depth to those who have explicitly commented on Barth's musings on film and those who have been inspired by the them in their own work. It demonstrates how certain critical and theoretical themes regarding the cinema emerge and develop through the course of Barth's career and argues for the singular importance of Barth's writing on film, despite or perhaps even because of the deep ambivalence that Barth sustained towards that object from beginning to end. For me, French's book reads as a celebration of the critical virtue of an ambivalence as it is played out in Barth's permanently unsettled attitude to the object film, showing how this lasting ambivalence allowed one of the 20th century's most important and influential critics to articulate perspectives on the nature and possibilities of cinema that still feel unexpected, complex, and subtle. Hello, Patrick. Hi. Hi, Bill. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book on Bart and film? Sure, yes. Well, I'm, uh, I've been a lecturer, then a reader and professor in French um, for a long time, um, PhD in 1996, 1995, 1996, I think. Um, and my PhD was, um, my initial research was on the journal Tel Quel, um, a kind of main um, venue, as it were, for French theory and that kind of avant-garde literary practice in the 1960s and 70s. And Barthes was um, very closely connected to Tel Quel, wasn't a member of the Tel Quel group. A kind of fellow traveller, as it were. So, so yeah, quite a lot of my work on Telquel uh, was an engage- involved an engagement with Bart. Um, my supervisor, as it happened, Annette Lavers, was one of the first translators of Bart into English. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, I suppose that that 
that work, which subsequently publishes a book called The Time of Theory, um, involved quite a close engagement with Barthes' literary theory. Um, so, and I moved on from that. I worked on other things, Georges Bataille, for example. But um, Barthes was always, um, you know, felt close, I suppose, intellectually um, and in other ways to Barthes um, was a kind of consistent focus in my work. <clears throat> I've published on other aspects of Barthes' work. But um, more recently, uh, I was working on a book which, the previous book to this one, called Thinking Cinema with Proust, um, where I was trying to read uh, Proust's novel, A la recherche du temps perdu, um, <clears throat> against the, I suppose, the history and the kind of structure and apparatus of cinema. Um, I suppose it's interesting that um, in the Proust's novel, which, um, as everyone knows, covers um, uh, one's over seven volumes and is covers a, a quite substantial period in French social cultural life of uh, the early part of the 20th century. Um, despite that, at, at a time when the cinema is burgeoning as an industry, there are very few, if any, references to cinema in Proust's novel. No one goes to the cinema in the novel. So I suppose I was interested in the ways in which the novel, despite that, um, uh, in which there are parallels to the experience of the cinema in which Proust or Proust's narrator referred to proto-cinematic um, modes of vision and experience. Um, so it's a book mm. really about the way in which Proust and cinema could, could be kind of put into comparison or functional competition, as I put it in the book. Um, and Barth was important to that. He was a kind of um, uh, reference in that book. And I suppose that 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 provoked for me similar questions to the ones in which which I approach in this Barth and film book. So as you as you mentioned, the ambivalence in Barth's work around the cinema was also there in this kind of approach that I took to Proust, the well, resistance on Proust's part to the cinema, which is I also found in Barth. Um, so that's one kind of uh, way in which I was already concerned without really knowing it at the time with uh, Barth and cinema. Um, and I've always been fascinated with the, some of the key texts by Barth on the cinema, um, key essays, the Troisième Sens, the Third Meaning, um, from 1970, which no doubt we'll come to later. Um, and then En Sortant du Cinéma, or Leaving the Cinema, Leaving the Movie Theatre. These, um, you know, I suppose are quite key references in film theory without, without really having been looked at, to my mind, in, in, enough detail or with enough attention to the kind of consistent approach to cinema or the consistent ambivalence, if you like, to cinema in Barth's work. Um, so yes, so that's the broad context. I suppose I work on, uh, in my research and teaching on 20th century French literature, um, critical theory, um, and wouldn't describe myself as a specialist of film in a strict sense, but these last two books, Proust and Cinema, Barth and Cinema, there seems to be an orientation towards Thinking about the place of cinema in in the work of of well Proust and Barth in this sense in this instance in the in the work of writers who aren't directly concerned with it or aren't filmmakers themselves um, yeah that's okay. that's how I would describe myself and what led me to the book okay well um I imagine that you like me um, Barth was one of my first loves it, it, one of the first writers who seduced me into an interest in theory so um. And I'm sure that's yes. true of many people engaged with film theory. 
uh, back yes. in the day. He was um, indispensable. Okay, so your book begins with Bart's essay on the face of Garbo, published in Mythologies, probably still the most widely read of all his books. According to you, if I understand you correctly, despite appearing in a book explicitly devoted to dismantling the myths of mass culture, this essay should actually be considered part of an implicit counter-project to poeticize rather than to demythologize. That continues a tendency that you find already observable in essays published prior to mythologies, um, most of which I don't think have ever been translated to English. So I'm wondering if you can address this tension between the duty to demythologize and the desire to re-poeticize that seems to vibrate throughout Barth's writing. Yes, I think I, I put it in, in, a, in a number of times in the book. I describe this tension between, I think this is a quote from Barth himself, between critical language and an expressive language. Um, and I think that's particularly acute in this essay on the face of Galbo. That um, and it, it also runs through other other um, other of the essays in mythology. Um, that yes, there is this kind of there's the ideological critique that is um, that is the if you like the substantial kind of message or orientation of mythology and I suppose more broadly across Bath's work of this time um, uh, across all of the essays in mythology, but but wider than that as well. To to which which arose, as he says in the preface to mythology, from this critical impatience with the with the um, myths of his time, with the ideology with um, that that underpinned everyday life. Um, but and you're right, you know, I put this in relation to other essays by Barth, like Visage et Figure, um, which has not been translated. Um, that in this essay on Garbo, he seems to be quite drawn to the face. Um, and there's a very, uh, very lucid um, reading of Bart's work on the face in the book by Noah Stymatsky, The Face in Film, which I used in the book. So I think he's he's attracted to the face of Garbo as a as a what I think he says a kind of critical uh, juncture, if you like, a moment between the time when the face was a sacred object, as he describes the face of Rudolf Valentino. And a shift towards um, faces like that of Audrey Hepburn, which are more mobile, um, in which there is a more uh, a kind of um, attempt to, or, or as he sees it, attempt to kind of um, de desacralize the face to make the face part of the kind of um, more re supposedly realistic or vraisemblable um, representation. So I think, despite appearances or despite what other critics have said, that he. he Talks about the face of Garbo as an idea and the face of Hepburn as an event. I think he's still quite attracted to this idea of the, the, the sacredness of the face, or at least to this moment of hesitation, if you like, between the face as sacred object and the face as, as real. And he's very, I was fascinated by the way in which he focuses in on a very slight inflection in Garbo's mm -hmm. face, a kind of relation between the curve of the eyebrow and the nostril. Um, Typical, typical of Bath's delicacy, I would, I would say, in his approach to images. Um, so yes, he try. I think in that essay, he, as I put it, poeticizes. It's a poetic rewriting of of the mythical object here. Um, a kind of ekphrastic writing as well. He's kind of writing about an image, writing poetically about an image. And I think this 
this is um, you know something Michael Moriarty in his book on Bart, Roland Bart, discerns in some of the essays in mythology. This attempt to poetically rewrite the myth in order to take it away, in a sense, from its ideological determination. So I think there is that sense in which Bart is, in some instances, in mythology, and perhaps particularly uh, in this essay on the face of Garbo, is is a writer. Uh, I think there's this uh, movement across his work towards writing, towards you know, poetic writing, um, which becomes more and more pronounced. You know, the, one of his last lectures at the Collège de France, La Préparation du Roman, is where he's writing about becoming a writer, how one becomes a writer. And I think it's it's there already, if you like, in this early work, mythology. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it comes out particularly, um, it's, it's symptomatic, if you like, that it's it's a, a film image or an image drawn from film. Of course, it's a still he's writing about, which is which is another aspect of the book, which we'll no doubt we'll talk about further. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So um, you've kind of, Preempted some of the content of my next question, which is mm. I, pro- I should have anticipated. Um, one thing that struck me while I was listening to you is that uh, Bart does draw this opposition, uh, and he says in his book on himself, uh, Roland Bart on Roland Bart, that he does have a love for creating oppositions. Um, yeah. he, he creates this opposition between uh, Garbo, which you mentioned, between Garbo as idea and Audrey Hepburn as an event, um, it's really quite incredible when you reread these texts. You think you've understood them, but I saw so much that I hadn't seen when I read it years ago. Um, particularly, you mentioned that 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 discussion of the, the subtle play between Garbo's, uh, the curve of her, uh, her mouth and the, yeah. the shape of her eyebrows, which I suppose he takes as suggesting a kind of a sense of stylization or design in, in the living flesh of her face. Yes. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, a little bit more perhaps, about that um, somewhat enigmatic um, opposition between idea and event and the way that it's been received. Uh, people seem to, different writers seem to assume that he's championing one or the other. Um, I would think that it's that he's actually most drawn to Garbo precisely because of that sense of, sense of hieratic distance that, yes. that her face evokes for him. And yes. uh, maybe you could also, in that context, talk a little bit about your discussion of Blanchot's um, analysis of the corpse as exhibiting a deeply disconcerting form of resemblance that resembles nothing. Yes, I think Bath is very um, subtly, um, and, and sometimes it is, you know, it's, it's it's easy to pass over these things. He's subtly trying to introduce a kind of um, uh, difference or fracture, in a sense, between between the image and our reception of it, as it were, which is um, just suppose is is I think akin, and I think I, I there's no direct evidence of this, but I think Blanchot's essay, um, two versions of the imaginary, would have been very um, would have been a reference for Bath at this point. Um, this sense in which the image is sense of the strangeness of the image. Um, I think that that comes through quite a lot in Bath's approach to images. The ways in which he wants to take them aslant, or I suppose you know, he might use the word déjoué to kind of, which is difficult to translate, but to kind of uh, subvert in a sense or outplay, do something different with the image. So I think that's that. It might be a good way to describe what's going on with Bart's approach to the face of Garbo. Um, 
in which it doesn't have the kind of sacred distance, if you like, or the the kind of um, remoteness and unapproachability, if you like, of the face as sacred object or the mask, if you like, of which I think is his approach to Valentino. Um, I think the anthropological register, the work of Levi Strauss, for example, would have been would have been kind of close in his mind at this time. Um, but yeah, it's it's that kind of trembling, if you like, of the image of the face of Garbo in the gesture or the physiognomy, the the gestural physiognomy of Garbo's face that Bath tries to introduce there. And I think, um, yeah, other critics. Um, I should mention uh, the book by Philip Watts that um Cinema, um, in which I think Watts, in a way, goes along with the interpretation of this, in which, according to which, Bath would be championing the kind of move towards greater mobility of the face, a greater kind of realism of the face in cinema. Um, but yeah, on the contrary, I think um, he's attracted to the the face of Garbo as this um, yeah, subtle moment of trembling, if you like, between the face as sacred object and the face as everyday object. Um, yeah, I think there are other aspects of your question, which, I've, which you might have to remind me of. Oh, that seems sufficient to me. Good. If, if yeah. that's okay with you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you begin the second chapter of your book by discussing Bart's rarely mentioned early writing for the Revue Internationale Filmology. Yeah. Uh, prior to his subsequent shift to a more generalized engagement with the mass media and the methods of semiology as they apply to texts in general. Yes. Already in this early writing, you discern an unresolved tension. And this, again, you've, to some extent, You've already anticipated this question, but I'll go on. You discern an unresolved tension between the aspiration to formulate a rigorous critical discourse and a more playful inclination towards expressive language, which it occurs to me might be seen as reflecting an unwillingness on his part to finally commit either to to theory or the essay form, that is, on the one hand, to a discourse that typically wants to suppress subjectivity on the other to a form that tends to place the subjectivity of the author at the at center stage. Yes. So if you want yes. to address that. Yeah, sure. I think that the filmology moment is, as you say, it's not had a huge amount of critical attention. Um, it's quite a strange, I think, quite a strange uh, moment in, in, the, in, in French intellectual life in terms of film theory, film studies, um, even though it lasts, you know, the, the review itself, the group lasts quite a long time and it attracts quite prominent people. And Bart is involved in it in a, a few essays that's, that are published in the group, but um, in, in the review itself. But yes, I think it's it is quite a strange moment in the sense that, um, as I said previously, in some of the essays in Mythologie, Bart has you know he has quite a journalistic style. I suppose he's addressing specific objects. There is, as I said, this uh, uh, quite expressive language. Which is not putting himself center stage as a subject, as Roland Barthes myself, but as a as a reader of images and as a writer. Um, but whereas the essays for the filmology review are a bit more austere, a bit more scientific in their orientation, um, it's worth adding that the filmology movement, as as perhaps the name suggests, was um, had very little in the way of attention to specific films or specific filmmakers. It was an attempt to study the phenomenon of film from a sociological angle, I suppose, influenced by um, the Frankfurt School, by Krakauer, for, for example. Um, so in some ways, it's a bit 
as if Bart is not not fully um yeah, there is an ambivalence in his relation to that group. Um and to the austerity of that. There's a kind of um come to this later as well, there's a kind of a mismatch, if you like, between the ethos of Kaidu Cinema, which is uh, quite the prominent film review of the time, and filmology. There was a kind of um, lack of dialogue between those two mm-hmm. kind of cine, cinephilic and cinephobic movements, in a sense. Um, but Barth's contributions to the Revue de Filmologie come at a time when I think he is developing this, in his work, this movement towards a more yeah, rigorously, a more scientifically grounded, more theoretically grounded language. It's kind of parallel to the development of his of semiology. Um, going back to mythology, the kind of addition of the final essay to that book, the Mythe aujourd'hui, Myth Today, where he goes back to Saussure and establishes the kind of um, re-establishes the ground rules for semiological method. I think. So towards the end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s, there's this movement in Bart's work where he's, um, yeah, to setting setting down the ground rules for semiological method, which does lead to a more methodological approach in which the, if you like, expressive language seems to wane somewhat. Um, but you know, I think both both aspects of Bart's work, the critical and the expressive language, or the theoretical language and the um, expressive language exists side by side all the time. It's just that in different works and in different, perhaps in different moments, one comes to the fore. And I think in the phenomenology essays and the early writings for communication, um, this is this is what's um, dominant. Um, but yes, I, I I think you're right that there is this, still this kind of hesitation, perhaps in Bart's work, between around this um, critical language, which um, as he says in Roland Barthes par Roland Barthes, he, he seems to consistently want to displace himself as soon as his language becomes fixed or reified as any kind of doxa. And I think uh, that's what happens with phenomenology and to some extent with semiology as well. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Right. Okay. So... Even in this early work, Bart already raises the problem of the very possibility of a semiological study of film. Yes. Uh, given the apparent impossibility of isolating or identifying minimal arbitrary signifying units comparable to phonemes in language, uh, yeah. a problem that gets played out very clearly in the career of Christian Metz and others. This yeah. is perhaps inseparable from the deep and ongoing problem for Bart of responding to cinema's status as what he calls an analogon, the, yep. the, the quality of overwhelming and immediate resemblance which allows it to stick to the referent in a relation of pseudo-nature. 
but says that film is less read than lived as an imminent experience. He also theorizes a specific form of trauma, and this is I had never come across this work before, that arises for viewers, and presumably also critics and theorists, in attempting to verbally articulate their experience of film. Yeah. And uh, this, this, this account of tra- trauma seems to bring us close to one of the registers of uh, Bart's ambivalence towards film, that it is a troubling object insofar as it is diachronic, irreducibly diachronic, and defies the immobility assumed by description and or analysis, but also in precisely in that regard provocative insofar as it approaches, and I don't know how to pronounce this properly, a signifiant uh, in Christava's yeah. sense, the yeah. level at which codes that determine and fix meanings are not already closed and established, and that's a theme throughout uh, Bart's work on film and elsewhere, the, 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 the attempt to articulate um, signifiant. Can you talk about this analysis of cinematic trauma and the ways you show it prefigure elements of Bart's later work on film? Yes, I think I agree that the... Um... The essay that he, that about one of the essays that Bath proposed for the Revue de Filmologie, um, I forget the full title for the moment, but the, on the traumatic units in the cinema, um, is extremely curious and interesting. And it's true, it hasn't received a lot of attention. Um, I don't think he means, well, we might be confused by the term trauma. I don't think he means trauma in the sense in which we might think of it today in the, in the strictly psychoanalytic sense or psychological sense, but more that kind of um, element of a uh, scene, of a, of a cinematographic scene, which the viewer can't quite, doesn't quite fit with the spectators. Um, they, can't, they can't name it. Um, there's something about the scene which is troubling, as you said. Um, so it's already about there is adopting an approach which I think is consistent across his work to try and identify that element which is troubling or that element which can't be explicitly named, which doesn't fit with the code um, or the codes of reception, if you like. Um, and yeah, it's an, it's an early attempt to try and grasp and provide some kind of analytic purchase or even writerly purchase perhaps on that, that aspect of signifiance, the kind of meaning that goes beyond what can be named or what can be codified. Um, and yeah, so I think that, that um, there is that sense in which what, what he's attracted to, what he's trying to grasp is the troubling object or, the, or what troubles in the scene. And that does, that, that sticks out, if you like, to use another Barthesian motif, something that's, as he writes in a, another a later essay on Bataille, called Les Sorties du Texte from the verb sortir, something that sticks out in the troubling sense, um, also perhaps as a phallic register to that, but, but we can come to that later maybe. Um, yes, so it's, it's that, that consistent um, orientation or that consistent drive or desire even to try and tackle, to kind of take on what, what, what can't be named, what, kind of, uh, what appears as subjectively or analytically different or unassimilable. Um, I think you can see that in the punctum later, for example, in the obtuse part. So there's a very, you know, you could, uh, this work hasn't been done, but I think it'd be very interesting to think about the relations between that essay on the traumatic units of cinema to his approach later to the, the, the stills from Eisenstein that he analyzes in the third meaning. Um, but I suppose it, 
maybe it's worth adding that it's under quite different conditions. So, Filmology Movement did these undertook these um, what they called thematic film tests, um, <clears throat> and this is one instance of Bath's kind of involvement, um, or, or not direct involvement, but interest in 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 the practice of film. Um, although these this is under very artificial conditions, these thematic film tests, where, for example, a couple would be filmed, and they'd be instructed to <clears throat> relate to each other in different ways, to talk to each other in different ways, and the spectators of these film tests would be invited to try and name or interpret or describe what they saw. So, you know, this is a, a artificial film test that Bath is referring to um, in this essay on the traumatic units of signifiers. Of cinema, um, which is obviously different from his analysis of film stills from Eisenstein later. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so now we arrive at chapters three and four, where you uh, discuss one of Bart's most famous essays on film, which you've just mentioned, which is the third meaning. Yeah. Um, in that essay, Bart discerns three levels of meaning in a series of stills extracted from Eisenstein's films, and which I think were published in Gahir de Cinema. Yeah. Uh, the first is the informational. Yeah. The second is the symbolic, which I, I think he later labels as obvious. Yes. And a third, which he says holds him and which he certain, associates with certain signifying accidents and he calls the obtuse meaning. Yes. Uh, could you run us through your understanding of these distinctions and the theoretical value of the third meaning as a uniquely Barty and innovation. Yes, I think this this essay, the third meaning, is is fascinating and, as you say, seminal seminal in film theory. Um, <clears throat> published in Code du Cinema, I think it's important, as you noted, that the stills which Barth is analysing are are not still not stills that or not photograms. Perhaps we'll come to that distinction later. Mm -hmm. That he's chosen himself, but ones which have appeared in previous essays in Code du Cinema. Which at the time were had been publishing a you know in each issue there was a selection of translations of Eisenstein's writings into French and essays on Eisenstein in this kind of quite politicized um, Marxist oriented moment of Cahiers Cinema in the late sixties early seventies. So Barth is it's also a kind of critical discourse on Cahiers Cinema as well as on Eisenstein. But yes, he um, he makes this distinction between the th th these three levels. Information, symbolic or obvious meaning, and the third meaning, third or obtuse meaning, as he puts it. Um, he's not interested in the first two levels at all, really. Um, and in fact, in some ways, it's quite difficult to distinguish between what he means by information, um, the information of the image, and the symbolic meaning of the image. What he's really interested in is the distinction that he draws between the obvious meaning and the obtuse meaning, uh, or the uh, Second order meaning of the symbolic, and the third meaning. Um, and so the second meaning, the symbolic or obvious meaning, is um, very much linked to the intention of the filmmaker, the or the intention of the film. It's what the film wants us to receive, as it were, in the sense of the fictional diegesis of the film, or the ways in which it appeals to or relates to symbolic codes. So, for example, one of the, the first image that I think he writes about, which is that of the the, the coronation of the Tsar, um, the, the symbolism of gold, the symbolism of coronation, 
Um, that's what he picks out first. Um, but yes, as you said, there's something else that holds him. And this is again where, where the subjectivity, where Bath's subjectivity comes into play. It's something that holds him. So you can almost as if he embodied him, him embodies himself as a viewer, as a spectator held in front of the image. Something again, which troubles him to go back to the traumatic unit. It's, there is a, sense of continuity there between this troubling traumatic unit and this aspect of the image which holds him. Um, so yes, what is the obtuse meaning? Um, and here it's, um, one could be very easily tempted to think that it's what holds him, what holds Barth himself. It's something that appeals to his specific, to the subject that he is, that he, Roland Barth, is. So for example, you might think that there's what, what holds him or what troubles him in the first image is the is the the plasticity in a sense of the film of the image the face again of one of the courtiers it's often the face as well but not not only so there's something about Barth as subject which is attracted to or troubled by a particular formation of the face um, it's curious that when he writes about the face of the courtier in that Eisenstein still he he describes it using this French phrase poudre de riz, which is kind of fa- a kind of face powder made of rice powder, but something about the whiteness of the face attracts him. So perhaps one might be led to think there's something in Bath's own subjective experience in his own memory that that is determining that that it's a, a kind of almost Proustian recollection from his own past, perhaps connected to his mother, who he also refers to as in relation to this idea of the poudre de, poudre de riz, this kind of face powder. Um, but I don't think it's just that. I think there's, he's also trying to found a kind of theory, if you like, of this troubling tuse meaning. He's not only saying there's this subjective element, which is about my experience, my past, my memory. As he says, we may not be able to talk about it, we may not be able to name it, but we can understand each other in relation to it. It's a kind of interlocution, he says, around this obtuse meaning. Um, and it's very, again, a very subtle, um, typically of Bart, um, uh, a very subtle direction which he takes, which is to say that there's something about the uh, another of the images that, that troubles him, of the face of um, a woman in uh, Eisenstein's battleship Potemkin. Mm. Um, he's interested in the whole sequence, the whole mourning sequence, so that a sailor has been killed um, and the crowd is mourning and Eisenstein's film, which is you know, very fascinating to watch the film um, in, in continuity, as it were, in relation to what Bath says about it and the stills. But there's something about this face in a particular frame, particular photogram, so a particular kind of split second instant, which has been captured in the still, which again holds him. And he says it's where her something again about the curve of the eyebrows in relation to the curve of the mouth, which for him says something. There's something clown-like about it. So even though the image of this woman is, um, she's in mourning. So there's a, obviously the, the whole thematics and mood of it is tragic. There's something he says derisory about it. It's as if her face is disguised by her suffering to the point of being derisory or to the point of becoming looking more like a mask um and i use the phrase in my in my 
account of it, the becoming mask of the image. Um, and I think that's that that aspect which I think where he locates the obtuse. It's this way in which the film is somehow announcing its own artificiality, which is again unsticking itself from this um, analogous resemblance in which we can't we can't help but view it as something lived um, or as li- or as living the experience. It's a moment at which we we are provoked to step back from it and see it as a film or as an image. But I suppose the, you know, the key and quite tricky um, point there is that Barth is writing this about a still, about a, uh, a photogram, um, so a, a single frame taken out of the film, um, rather than the film in sequence. So his theory of film here, or what he calls the filmic, is completely counterintuitively and perhaps very paradoxically a film or a theory of the still image and he i think he pushes this quite far to say that a theory of the, a theory of film a theory of the filmic has to start with the photograph has to start through this from this kind of analytic moment of the um, critique and and writing on the, the the still image the photograph which no doubt well we might come to later too yeah so once again, I seem to have um, managed to write questions that you fully anticipate in your answers to the previous question. Yeah. Um, let me just look at this for a moment. Uh, yeah. In discussing the suffering old woman who is mourning the death of, I think it's Val- um, yeah. he tells us that he perceives that, that a disruptive force that is staked on the excessive mass of her hair, and mm. this might remind us of the heavy burden we've already seen carried by a perceived relationship, as you've just pointed out, or resonance between details, in particular the mouth and eyebrows, in the face of Garbo. Yeah. Um, and in a quite oracular fashion, he tells us that, that the third meaning, is, which is dependent on these almost imperceptible details, or, or not even on details, but on the play between details. Yes. So in, interior to the image, which is, a, a very different approach where we normally talk about uh, in film theory, people talk about relations between different moments of the image, but this is yes. a, a relationship interior to a single frame. Yes. Um, he suggests that this, this tiny moment is suggestive in his words of the crucial problem of our time and that it belongs to tomorrow's polity, which mm. uh, I, I wonder if you could talk about this, apparently hyperbolic weighting of almost imperceptible details, not only in this essay, but throughout yes. Bart's work on film. Yes, you're right. It is hyperbolic. Um, the, 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 the idea that the, this tension between different fragments or, or what, what Eisenstein, I think, called an accentuation within the fragment, or within, within the still, or relation between fragments within the still, is quite hyperbolic to stake the, you know, an approach to tomorrow's politics on this, this relation between fine details. Um, but I think it's useful to think of of the context in which Barth is writing this um, in Cahiers um, in 1970. So, as I said, this is a moment when Cahiers was quite was quite heavily politicised, um, moving towards a perhaps increasingly austere approach to film, which seemed to, in a way, evacuate the f- the film as an object. And move towards more of its, its ideological determinations. Um, so yes, Kaye in this uh, Marxist and then very kind of Maoist movement very closely 
uh, interrelated with Telkel, the Telkel group at the time, um, despite some uh, arguments and, and kind of dissonances between Cahiers and Telkel. So Barth is writing this in the context of a kind of, um, again, post-68 um, emphasis on uh, politicized theory or the politicization of theory. Um, so to to say that um, to talk about the politics of tomorrow um, is very resonant and and again typically Barthesian. To talk about that in the context of uh, you know this this consistent emphasis on Eisenstein as a political um, Soviet filmmaker um, in the context of Tilkel and Kaye, um emphasis on Marxist theory on Marxist philosophy and then Maoist philosophy in Delkel as well. To for Barth to say that the politics of tomorrow is staked upon this fine relation between details within the frame is is again a kind of I think perhaps motivated by a wish to displace himself to to introduce a different voice in this sense in this sense a kind of voice of subtlety perhaps to try and um perhaps distance himself or displace himself in relation to the what at the time might be called the longue de bois a kind of um yeah the kind of orthodox voice of politicized theory um and yes it's interesting that as you say he he he's doing this on the basis of relation between details rather than uh focusing on the question of montage um which is key for key for Eisenstein um and so he's running completely counter in a way to the whole kind of um uh direction of travel of Cahiers theory and um Eisenstein's work itself um even though I think the third meaning will be taken up and used quite extensively and productively by Cahiers critics such as Pascal Bonitzer um Jean-Louis Comolli and others um Sylvie Pierre might come to. So, yes, um, it's it's interesting as well that it's a it's a moment. It's what I think perhaps a quite rare moment in Barth's work where he he's trying to negotiate a relationship between his own critical and expressive language and his own critical orientation and um, the politics of the time. I think it might be seen interestingly in relation to his attitude towards 1968. Where towards this, the student revolt of May '68, Paris in France, um, where again he f- he said that this is not specifically relation to film, but I think it is relevant. Um, he says that what attracted him was not the the politics of the the events itself, but the graffiti and the the what he called the savage inscriptions on the the walls of Paris. So he's he's interested in a yeah more subtle, more um, well, that notion of sauvage, of the wild writing or savage writing, of trying to perhaps grasp something that in contemporary language might be called a more affective element in the image. So in the image of the, the mourning woman um, in, in Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin or in other images focused on the mass of hair of the woman or the, the tassels um, that are of the hair of one of the other mourning women. What I think he says that it, these details introduce what he calls a sentimental aspect. So it's almost scandalous in a sense at the time for him, for Bath to be kind of highlighting and affirming and staking a critical claim on the, this, on the sentimental. But I think that, that, that makes a lot of sense in terms of his trajectory. 
um, its critical trajectory from from SZ, for example, in 1969-1970, the analysis of the short story by Balzac towards the pleasure of the text, 1973, Roland Barthes by Roland Barthes, fragments of a lover's discourse. So there's this movement towards the affective or attempt to negotiate between the affective elements of a text or a film or an image um, and the the kind of, yeah, the political aspect. Okay. Um, so my next question you've, you've also already answered, which was precisely about the way that uh, Bart somewhat scandalously suggests that the essence of the film can be found uh, only in stills and not in the, what we would normally be taken to be the natural state of cinema as a moving image. So yes. I'll skip that and I'll just move on, since you've just mentioned um, a certain kind of savagery, um, yeah. to Bart's reference to Bataille's analysis of the big toe. Mm. which uh, Bataille analyzes as definitive of humanity from the perspective of a base materialist understanding of evolution. Yeah. So uh, any comments you have to make about that would be fascinating. Yes, yeah. Um, um, in fact, I'm working on, on, the, on, on the status and role and place of Bataille in, in, in Cahiers du Cinéma at this time, which um, is in a sense inaugurated by Bart's reference to it. Um, it's very... Interesting that the, the kind of relation, the, the the place of Bataille in French theoretical writing of this time, um, and in Barthes' work in particular. Um, so, so Bataille's Oeuvre Complète, uh, first, well, the first few volumes of of those had just been published in France in 1970, um, with uh, Denis um as one of the prime movers behind that, um, prefaced by Michel Foucault as well. Um, so Bataille uh, also mainly through the um through the work of Telkel earlier in the sixties had was was becoming a more prominent figure, more prominent reference point. Um there have been work earlier essays by by Bart, uh, analysis of Bataille's Story of the Eye from nineteen sixty three. Bart's essay nineteen sixty three. An essay by Derrida. So Bataille has this um you know increasingly prominent place in French theory at the time. But um it's almost exclusively, well, with the exception of Bart's essay on Story of the Eye, Bataille's post-war work, which is at stake there. Um, so Bart's reference back to Bataille's Big Toe essay, which is from Document, the review Document in 1929, um, is quite surprising. Um, Bart would go on um, in 1972, so two years later, to devote an essay called Les Sorties du Texte, or The Outcomes the text as it has been translated to devote an essay specifically to Bataille's big toe. Um, but yeah, it's again this kind of um, wish to try and uh, locate or to highlight, to affirm something exorbitant in the image, something again which is troubling, which doesn't fit, which sticks out, whence that title is sorti du text. Um, and I think reading Bataille's big toe essay with Bart or with Bart's essay, The Third Meaning, is very interesting in the sense that it's not it's not that Bataille or Bart are interested in the big toe as such in itself. Um, <laughs> it's more that it doesn't it's a kind of aspect of the body which is uh which um troubles structure and structurally disturbs the the more the photogenia of the image, if you like, the the which structurally disturbs the face, the beauty of the face, if you like. So if you think about 
the face of Garbo in relation to Bataille's big toe or the photos by Boifard that Bataille is writing about there. That's, it's that structural kind of or, um, uh, disturbance in the, in the relation between those two aspects, the beauty of the face and the physical protuberance, if you like, of the big toe that, that I think Bart wants to, wants to wield there, wants to kind of bring into both to kind of, um, again, isolate what sticks out, what, what troubles the image, what, um, something that disturbs its photogenic, um, aspect, um, but also introduce, in, to introduce this kind of, again, wild um, other reference into the discourse of film theory, um, which, again, as I, as I mentioned, I've been working on this recently, kind of is taken up in Cahiers, particularly by Pascal Bonitzer. Um, uh, I, developed, I point towards this a bit in, in the Bath and Film book, um, in which Bataille but then becomes an a intermittent reference in Cahiers film theory. Um, so yeah, and I think I don't know. Bataille is the relation between Bart and Bataille is quite uh, subtle again. Bart, Bart doesn't fully espouse the idea of Bataille as this um, kind of subversive abject theorist of abjection, but more picks on here the way in which Bataille also, with in, in quite subtle ways, um, unsettles uh, orthodox structures. Yeah. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yep. So, I... I... I have a series of quite detailed questions about your next chapter, which um, mm. responds to responses uh, made by other authors to the third meaning. Yep. But I do want to make sure that we at least get to leaving the theatre. So rather than yep. go through all my questions, I'll just yep. ask you if, if you want to say anything particular about any of those essays or responses by Pierre or Didi Uberman or Carrasco or Kunzel. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, and. I suppose this chapter I was trying to um given given the uh prominence of Bart's essay The Third Meaning to try and give some kind of a uh, picture of the the ways in which it had been taken up. Um I won't go over them in detail, but I think you know, Sylvie Pierre um is a cahier crit critic of the time and she she proposed a very um she wrote a very important essay, I think, called Elements for a Theory of the Photogram, which was kind of working on the back of Bart's third meaning essay, but she's quite critical of Bart in a sense. She says that um, the photograms, the stills that Bart is writing about are, are not photograms in a strict sense. From a, for a fully photogrammatic approach, one would need to take any, any photogram, any frame. So even frames in which the, the camera is kind of blurred between one or that the image is blurred between one, one identifiable object and another kind of, um, and even frames in which nothing discernible appears, in which there's nothing very obvious to say about it. So I think she wants she's she radicalizes Bart's approach, um, and again using Bart as a kind of support for this. Um, and I think that's it's it's. Um, I thought it was important to note that um, again, Pierre's essay hasn't been, although it's been quite recently translated. Um, I don't think it's been. Um, 
had the recognition it deserves. Um, similarly, I think Raymond Carrasco, I was very interested in the way in which she engaged with Bart's work um, as a filmmaker herself, but also as a critic. Um, and um, I, Carrasco is very, also very significant in that she, she provides a way of engaging Bart with Deleuze, um, who, as we know, kind of later in the, <clears throat> in the 80s, kind of, kind of revolutionized film theory or film philosophy in France with his two books on cinema, which, in which there's very little reference to Bart in the t- printed text. And there is a sense in which Deleuze doesn't, either doesn't quite get Bart or just doesn't, in which that there is a kind of divorce, in a sense, between Deleuze's approach, which is very much attentive to the moving image, the moving in the image in the sense that it mo- that it, there is movement in it, and the image in the sense that there is that time passes. So, not Deleuze is not really interested in his philosophy of film in the still or the photogram. Um, so Carrasco, who who attended Deleuze's seminars and who, in the recordings of those seminars that one can access, there is a kind of um, the transcriptions of those recordings, there is a very interesting interchange between Kausko and Deleuze, precisely about Barth and Deleuze's um, interpretation of Barth. So that was that was that's the main content, if you like, of that section of that chapter. Is that the dialogue, if you like, between Barth and Deleuze via Kausko? Um, yes, and I perhaps might pick focus, but say something particularly about the section of that chapter on Didier Huberman, um, who. Mm-hmm. In one of his recent books, um, Peuple en Arme, Peuple en Larme, not translated yet, I don't think. There is a quite substantial um, chapter on Barthes and on Barthes' approach to film and to the image in general, which is very useful and very um, rich in its assessment of of Barthes' whole approach to the cinema. Um, but Didier is quite, um, I think, unjustly critical of Barth there, saying that Barth in his in his approach to Eisenstein in that essay is is violent in his denigration of Eisenstein. Um I don't think that's true. I think um detail of that chapter you'll see that I think it's evident that Barth is more appreciative of Eisenstein's subtlety. Um again. Um so yes, there's more there's yeah, quite a lot in that chapter. Thierry Kunzel, I, I think, is also under an underappreciated writer on film and filmmaker. So both Casco and Kunzel kind of um, develop out of their familiarity and um, knowledge of Bart's work on film, their own film practice um, in ways that's very interesting and I think deserves further work. Um, yes. So that, that chapter is a kind of uh, bridging chapter in a sense, um, kind of focusing on the, the receptions of the third meaning essay and its usage in, not so much in, in Anglophone film theory, but in, in French French film theorists and French filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just say in passing that one of the things that I most enjoyed was seeing that Kunstel uh, actually raised the question of animation, which mm. is so often completely neglected by people who want to stipulate the ontology of film in terms of photography and the index and the, the action of the chemical, the chemical action of emulsion in capturing yes. the trace of a moment uh, as if animation somehow didn't entirely belong to film, which is something that at least Deleuze acknowledges. Yes. But yep. I'll move on to uh, the next and also quite famous and beautiful essay by Bart about cinema, which is called 
uh, leaving the theatre. Yeah. Um, and I'll just say, uh, first of all, that one thing that struck me immediately on reading this is that it's almost unbearably poignant mm. in, uh, in, the, in the era of COVID-19 when, uh, yes. when, yeah. when we can't go to the cinema anymore and the, he's evoking Quite. this diffusive eroticism of, uh, of being amongst anonymous bodies and, and the colour yes. of darkness and so on and, and all of these things. Are, uh, unfortunately, who knows whether they'll be part of our experience of cinema in the future. Yes. Um, Yes. Yes, indeed. It, yes. Um, so it struck me that in some ways this, is, this essay represents the kind of the height of Bart's ambivalence um, in regard to the cinema, just as we've seen that he finds the essence of the filmic in a still rather than a moving image. He here evokes his own passion for uh, investing in the situation of the actual auditorium, the, the colour yeah. of darkness, the, the bodies, the light playing behind his back, rather than yeah. with the um, moving image, which one would normally assume would be the centre of any approach to film. Um, yes. He, he evokes hypnotism. Uh, he, he says that his experience of film is uh, like nothing more than the experience of hypnotism, which he then um, associates with healing and with music as a healing force. But then he goes on to, as, as I see it, radically switch tack to... Um, identify cinema very closely with the operations of ideology, uh, even to the point of saying that cinema is ideology and ideology is the cinema of a society. Yeah. And uh, finally, he paradoxically suggests that the best way to unstick oneself from the screen, from the, from the um, hypnotizing force of the analogon, is not to be armed with a critical discourse, the kind of discourse that we would think that Bart himself um, teaches us how to use, but yeah. to indeed to invest in this total situation of yeah. the cinema itself. So any thoughts you have on that? Yeah, well, I think it's very interesting that you started by evoking the, our current situation with the pandemic um, and the closure or evacuation, if you like, of these kind of spaces. Because I think, um, I suppose one could say that, you know, with, with, with the advent of digital images and different ways of viewing cinema, that that, that that was already starting to be the case, but you know, obviously, it's it's becomes more extreme with the with the pandemic. Um, but you're right that Bath is I trace this back to his early writings as well. He's what he seems interested in here. Um, before I come to the ideological aspect, the ideological argument is the is the situation of the cinema and the social space of the cinema as a space, with the idea of the of people. If you like, so in his earlier writings on film, in the first chapter, I wrote about the ways in which, as well as this focus on the face, there is this constant reference to the importance, if you like, of the people. This is more, more um, what he's interested in there. More is 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 the theatre, theatre as a space of the people, of a popular theatre, as he as he put it in his involvement with the Théâtre Populaire movement. But he does also touch on the kind of cinema as a space of the people, on the the, the popular ritual of going to the cinema on Saturdays, um, for example. Um, and I think this is echoed in the in the leaving the movie theater essay, where he he's interested in the situation of the cinema as a social space, as a as a space of if in, if not of the people, but of people, of other people, other bodies. Um, here, though, it's more the erotic and uh, potentially queer aspects that Bath is accentuating, the possibility of 
it's almost a kind of cruising situation um, in which these anonymous bodies are there in the cinema, and there's a there's a he talks about it as a as a um, as a as a space of potential eroticism, if not actual eroticism. Um, but that you're right that that's kind of um, that's what he uses to kind of uh, offset or displace uh, his kind of critical argument in this essay, which is yes, that the cinema is ideology, that the cinema is is a form of hypnosis. That um, that is healing in the sense of comforting or um, reducing, if you like, what might be critical about the kind of melancholy of the of the spectator. Um, he writes about the lure of the screen in a in a language that's very um, very uh, informed by Bart's increasing uh, uh, interest, if you like, in psychoanalysis. And in Lacanian psychoanalysis, particularly of the time, um, um, so yes, the screen is a lure. It's 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 something that, like a hypnotic object, um, the gaze is stuck to it. Um, so it's a very um, it's very resonant with other other essays in the in the journal issue Communication, to which it is a contribution um, by Jean Louis Baudry, for example, um, Christeva and Christian Metz and others. Which is very, very much uh, critical of the cinema, or or emphasizing the cinema as an ideological um, uh, trap, if you like, a trap for the gaze, um, using a lot of psychoanalytic um, vocabulary and concepts taken drawn from Lacan, um, particularly from Lacan's uh, seminar of 1964, I think, for fundamental concepts for psychoanalysis. Um, the analysis of the gaze there, and the look and the gaze. So yeah, Bart's the screen is a lure, the gaze is stuck to it. One needs to unstick the gaze. And yes, not surprisingly, not through this kind of Brechtian critical discourse, Bart doesn't mention uh, a film like, filmmaker like Godard, but um, I think that's you know what we might think he, he might have in mind, uh, this notion of a kind of Brechtian cinema, which is kind of Attempting to unstick the gaze from a from a, a, a less psychological, perhaps less melodramatic, less um, less vraisemblable picture of, of the real. Um, so not through that critical discourse, but through this attention to the um, situation of the room, in a sense, to the the way in which the the projector's light is playing, you know, is playing in the room to the to the kind of materiality, if you like, of the 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 the, the light and the, the situation of the cinema. Um, so it's almost, you know, it, interestingly, could be the basis of a more kind of experimental avant-garde kind of filmmaking, which is stressing the kind of grain grain of the image, just to use a Bartesian motif. There's a, a the grain of the voice is another um, interview, I think, with Bart. He uses that phrase. So. Yes, it's in a way quite an extreme essay, this turning away of the gaze, this unsticking of the gaze by tending to the bodies around, but the bodies in that space, to the structure and physicality of the space as well. Um, but I also, it's interesting that um, this is something I found fascinating in my research for the book, for this chapter in particular, that Bath's approach, Bath's vocabulary even in this section is extremely close to what he's writing at the same time or what he's speaking at the same time in his seminar on the lover's discourse 
um, the École Pratique des Autitudes, which is kind of parallel, coincident with this, where he's writing about the, the scene of ravishment, um, the, the ravishment uh, of the loving subject by the, the love object, which he also describes as a kind of in, in as a kind of hypnosis, as a kind of uh, hypnotizing of the subject through this kind of framed image. So there are points in the Sortant du Cinéma essay and the seminar on the lover's discourse where the two texts kind of almost kind of can be superimposed on one another. Um, and so he's using the same terms, the same concepts to describe the, the lure of the cinema screen to the lure or hypnotizing or ravishment um, of the lover by the love, ob love object. So um, it's curious, I think, that Bast is describing cinema and love with this, in the same breath, in a sense. Um, so that there is a sense in which he's also, perhaps I didn't, I could have accentuated this more in the book. He's also quite, um, again, poetically rewriting. He's kind of interested and excited by the idea of this ravishment in the cinema um, by a kind of framed image that that is um, that captures him as a spectator as or as a subject. Um, the difference is that he says in the lover's discourse that that it's a it's not a continuous image. It's, almost, it's not a static image. It's almost as if it's a kind of image sequence um, which captures him rather than the continuity of film. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's more, a lot more to say about that, I think. It's a really fascinating essay, um, even though it's quite short. Mm. It's Bakund. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, unfortunately, we've already gone over an hour. So, oh, okay. I don't think we'll be, yeah, we won't be able to address your final two chapters, which um, concerned Camera Lucida and yeah. Bart's dual quest to regain his mother and to define the essence of photography. Yeah. Uh, or the final chapter, which um, concerns his letter to Antonioni. Yeah. Which, um, it's probably the only time where Bart does the traditional film theorist gesture of affirming an auteur's entire body of work. Yes. Um, yes. But if you want to say something briefly uh, that yeah, you think okay. is necessary about those two, that that would be wonderful. Yeah. Well, the the, the sixth chapter, I think, on Camera Lucida. Um, I think a lot of the motifs I've already touched on are kind of very um, evident in that chapter. It's a, it's a very complex argument um, that he in in the book, in which he he starts off by saying, you know, I like photography at the expense of cinema, but I found it difficult mm. to separate the two. So I use that as a way of saying, tracing both the distinction that he makes between the photograph and the film. Um, I think one of the key things to accentuate is this idea that what he finds difficult in film is the way that it it um, it presents a view of the world which is in the same constitutive style. That's his phrase or a quotation from Purcell, in fact. We see the film in the same constitutive style as the as the reel itself. So it's difficult to he says that that means that it's we can't establish this distance from it or it can't it moves too quickly. It doesn't touch him because if there's something in the image that that he might might lead him to think, um, it's already passed. It's already moved on to another image. So the screen is occupied by something else. So it doesn't allow him this time to think to become what he calls and which other critics like Laura Mulvey have taken up. It doesn't allow him to become a pensive spectator. Um, but yeah, again, um, 
back to ambivalence. There's this sense in which um, uh, there are moments in Camera Lucida where where he picks up on film images, um, particularly a film image from Fellini's Casanova, um, with amazingly Donald Sutherland playing Casanova dancing with an automaton, where he says that this sequence wounds him with a particular acuity. Um, so despite what he says, he's still about you know, lot liking cinema. He picks on filmic examples um, to uh, to carry his argument. Um, but yes, I think that's that's um, again. I suppose the the overall message of that chapter is that despite being a book about photography, it's nevertheless commissioned as a book about film, and in some ways, it is very much a book about film, um, about the film image as well. Um, with the same tension between the moving image and the still image that 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 spans across his all of his work on film, um, and the final chapter on on Antonioni, I kind of used the uh, I think one of Bath's final texts that he was was in his typewriter um, when he died, um, his letter to Antonioni. Um, I used that as a kind of excuse, in a way, to to think of Antonioni as a kind of case study to point to the ways in which uh, Bath was quite affirmative of Antonioni across his career, even though there are um, scattered scattered references. Um, and Antonioni is quite important to him. For example, Antonioni's 1973 film, I think, on China, Chunku, China, um, was important in mediating Bath's own relationship to China. Um, so that, that closes closes the book in a sense because I think what Bath says in that letter, dear Antonioni, is but is kind of emblematic both of the of the way Bath approaches film. So he finds in Antonioni a kind of sympathetic resonance with his own approach to film. Um, with this phrase uh, that he uses in relation to Antonioni, this loving vigilance, um, which again combines both the kind of expressive language and the critical language. Um, or the, the the theoretical and the affective. Yeah. So that's yeah. it. Yes, it is. Thank you very much. Um, okay, so maybe to conclude with a with my own my own the thought that arises for me in reading your book about Bart and and your own response to that. Um, we've we've talked about ambivalent throughout Bart's work on film, um, yeah. and some might see that as a kind of obstacle, um, something that he couldn't get beyond. He could never make a final decision. On his attitude towards film, whether whether it was an object of love or something that he wanted to separate himself from, to, to get some kind yeah. of distance from, in order to um, sustain his his critical function. Um, yeah. But it seems to me that that might be it might be that very ambivalence, his fidelity to that ambivalence, that is the strength of his work that makes it singular. And to use a word that you use and that he uses about Antonio, um, subtle. It, it, his work yeah. is subtle because he is unable to to take a definitive stance in relationship to cinema, um, or to put it another way, read in the right way, Bart's work, which is to say, not in order to again identify the third meaning or again pinpoint punctum, uh, which has been done in a thousand undergraduate essays, yeah. but uh, to to sustain an interrogation of one's own ambivalence. That yes. allows him to to offer a unique and perhaps indispensable perspective to those who work in with film or on film theory. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a phrase that Bart uses himself in 
an earlier essay um, with reference to, again, a face, the face of um, Umberto D in the Sica's film of that name, Umberto D, where he mm -hmm. says that what that face proposes is a strictly human interrogation. Um, so I think we can think of that phrase. I don't do this in the book, but I think we could think of that as describing Barthes' approach to film as such, as uh, focused on this ambivalence, not not providing a kind of definitive theory of film or a kind of naming of different objects, but a kind of subtle, <clears throat> a subtle human interrogation, really, which um, which I think um, one could also see it, see this ambivalence as a constant wish to imagine differently. Um, so to, you know, in the work on the filmic, um, in the third meaning, this idea of the, the other film, the film that the photograms suggest of the film, if you like, to imagine, to, yeah, to imagine differently, to imagine the other film. So to unstick oneself from the lure of the screen by, yeah, by imagining differently. And I think that's what theory means for Bath. What, if, what film theory would mean for Bath would be to, would be to speculate and imagine differently, to, um, to use theory not as a kind of system or model, but as a as a mode of interrogation. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. And the final standard question I need to ask you is: uh, What are you working on next? Hmm, okay. Well, I'm uh, have a number of different projects, but one one which I mentioned was um, this is a quite short short article or series of articles, perhaps on the place of Bataille in Cahiers film theory of the time, nineteen um, seventies the early 1970s. Um, and then I've also been working for some time, and this is a larger project, on the question of gesture. Um, this relates to kind of theme that runs through the Bath and Film book. Um, he constantly refers to a phrase by Baudelaire of the emphatic gestures, emphatic gestures, sorry, in the grand circumstances of life. Um, so the place of gesture in, in literature, film, um, French philosophy, psychoanalysis as well, the way in which gestures um, can be, or gesture as such, can be captured, theorized, um, and the way in which it resists that. So this is a longer project. And I think, you know, Bath will come into that. Deleuze also, Agamben. Um, so yeah, this is what I'm working One of the things I'm working on at the moment. Okay. Well, thank you very much for giving us your time today, Patrick. Thank you, Bill. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thank you.